0: a lot because it's not taught frequently. And uh, even when we get into passages in the Gospels, we don't a lot of times focus in on the theology behind the miracles of casting out demons and things like that and the demonic activity. Uh, and so whenever we do take some time like that, like last week, it, it usually takes some people by surprise of my position on those things and the Bible's teaching on them. And so uh, we want to uh, put him in a right position, recognize that it is still very much uh, Satan's world. He is, roar, uh, he is roaming about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is the place where he he is limited to and exercising his uh, power and, uh, and he is against God. He is not for sinners. He is against them as well. He, is, he, he hates humans because we have what he does not. We have the likeness of God, which is what he wanted. He still wants it because he never got it. He never has what we possess even in our sin state, we possess the image of God. We're going to talk about that tonight as we get into anthropology, the study of man. And as such, we're going to talk about, uh, begin talking about creation, evolution, information, because, you might know, I say, why do you put this under anthropology, the different evolutionary teachings? Because it was really the attempt to define where did man come from? This was really the attempt to not just understand the natural order, our created order, that God has put it upon us. That really wasn't what was going on in the 1800s when we were really inundated by not only Darwinianism, but other aspects of science that Darwin was somewhat of a a product of, as well as uh, supporting and promoting, uh, was really about man. To deny that we were from God was essential to them because they wanted to deny God's existence. So, therefore, our origin had to be from something else, somewhere else. And, and again, please notice the title of Darwin's treatise. What was the title of his book? Uh uh-uh. uh. What was the title? Origin of the species. What species was he talking about? Man. Where did we come from? Was what Darwin was trying to understand in an atheistic environment. He didn't want to acknowledge God. He didn't want to uh, uh, have a divine creator that we're responsible to and answerable to and must obey. He wanted to have a, a... Uh, alternative origin of our species. So really, evolutionary thought isn't really about how everything came into existence, although it has developed into that, because we have to support that to support his statement that we are just a, a very advanced animal, that we are simply seeing these progressions through the animal species till we get to man's development. And, and so that's why we're going to bring evolutionary ideas and, and understanding uh, how we counteract those in, in under anthropology. But it certainly extends well beyond anthropology. And in fact, uh, some of our best material is outside of anthropology in terms of the scientific realm. When we get, and when I say scientific realm, I mean when we can actually measurable things. Okay? <laughs> Measurable things—that's science. When you can measure it and test it and repeat it, you can't repeat what Darwin is saying. We can't—you um, just can't do it. It has never been repeated what he has proposed, and we can't even, with thoughtful engagement, we can't cause it. And so, when we're talking about true science, this is science that is measurable. Um, and repeatable. It can be tested. It can be examined. And that's when you hear me say the word science. That's what I am going to focus in on. Uh, but it's not just the the science that we can measure that is helping us. We have a lot of help there. When we come to uh, the study of man, we have a lot of other areas that aren't so well measurable. Okay. What makes you distinct from animals? Well, those aren't things we can always measure, but they are identifiable. We can identify them socially. We can identify them that we are distinct from animals, uh, easily dis- identifiable. Uh, maybe you know, and you've probably heard this that well, mankind and chimpanzees uh, share 98% of the genetic material. How many of you have heard that kind of information? All right, that sounds real impressive. Uh, how much genetic commonality do you have with a cow? Do you know? About 95%. How much genetic commonality do you have with a bunny rabbit? Actually, more than a cow the bunny's blood is almost identical to your blood. Rabbit blood is some of the closest blood to human blood. Uh, Which is why they use rabbit blood in scientific testing of drugs because it reacts closest to human blood before they go to human trials. They use rabbit blood. And so, um, why? Why are we so genetically close? Because we have skin. How many animals do you know have skin? It requires a genetic information to create skin how many of you have muscles okay you all have muscles how much genetic information does it take to create muscles how many you have bones it requires genetic information to make bones that's all this has to be in your genes how many of you have eyes ears throat tongue brain organs go right through everything all of that requires Genetic information. And so it is is a fabrication, it is a trick. It is a trick to tell you we're really close to chimpanzees. Because you're really close to all of them genetically. And so when we're talking about immeasurables, um, I can measure genetic proximity. All right? Uh, But 2% of the genetic material is huge. Okay? We're talking about. (laughs) small fractions of genetic distinction to decide what part of the world you came from, what people group you originated out of, whether you are uh, European, Asian, African, whatever. I mean, they're talking about 0.000s. We're down to like uh, 10,000th of a difference genetically to distinguish between men and women between one people group, one family, one nation, one tribe, and another. And so there's a vast quantity of genetic information, and don't let these little blurbs that science uses make you think, oh, this is measurable and scientific. Uh, it's It's a trick, because they don't tell you how genetically close you are to rats, who also have skin, bones, muscles, a digestive system, organs, brains, eyes, Teeth, all those things that your genes have to produce. All right, they also have gut chemistry. They have all those same things. Hair, right? So everything that has those same things are going to obviously be very close to you genetically. All right, above ninety-five percent. So when we talk about what's different about man, it's not always easily measured scientifically. So we have to look outside of that and look at other areas. And the Bible points us to do that by referencing the image of God. So let's look at this very carefully. Uh, The original man, who is who? Adam, was a being created directly by God and was unique among all of God's creation, having been fashioned in the image of God himself. And this is not a measurable thing, but it is an evident thing. Just because I can't measure doesn't mean it's not obvious. Okay, And we've been tied to science is facts, and that's, scientism isn't, science should be, but there are obvious things that aren't measurable things that should be evident. So what's evidently different about man than the rest of creation? Just looking around, what's weird about us? You can't see that. You can't see a soul. I wear a lot more than glasses. I wear clothes. You know any other creature that wears clothes? Well, technically, I guess mollusks do. Shells. They have shells that they go from one shell to another shell. I guess you could call that a... That's more of a home than it is a clothing. We wear clothes. How weird is that? Where did that come from? Because you have a consciousness of sin, you know right from wrong. There is no evidence of that in the animal kingdom. They don't pray before their meals. They are—they don't feel guilty about anything unless you beat on them. Then they tuck their tail behind their leg between their legs, um, because not because they are fundamentally ashamed, is because you have caused them pain. Either by, and they, or they recognize this tone of voice with pain, and so they tuck their tail between their legs and they skimper off. Um, they don't have guilt. You have guilt. You have a sense of right and wrong. You have a conscience. There's no evidence of that in the animal kingdom. And so these aren't measurable things. But they are evident things is plainly evident that there comes a point that we are conscious of nakedness, that an animal is never conscious of. You know, and and, and I, I love when I bring people that raise in the city out to see some of my animals, and, and they're like, oh, I want to cover my kids' eyes because that animal is doing a natural thing. Right? Oh, yeah. this is going to disturb my children. It's not disturbing the animals. They don't care who watches. You know, and my uh, cow had a calf, and my son and I just happened to be there, and we had an apple, so we just put the tailgate down and watched her deliver her calf. She didn't care. You know, and it was like, that was a pretty cool thing. Um, she didn't care. We were uncomfortable a little bit. It's like, oh. But I wasn't really, but I grew up with that on the farm in Minnesota. And so, I've had to pull lambs out of sheep, so it's not that big of a deal. But uh, we have a moral conscience. It's not measurable, but it is evident. You're wearing clothes. You know right from wrong. Um, you do weird things that demonstrate a moral, lack of moral compass, okay? Uh, you murder just because you're mad. Um, by and large, why do most animals kill? To eat, or to protect, or to reproduce. But they're not intent to kill, they're just going to fight this other male until they become dominant, and sometimes that ends up in that other male dying, doesn't necessitate it, not the intent, the intent is just to get dominant so that I can mate and, and carry on my genetic uh, self. And so we see this and we see laws. We have laws, we have writing, we have arts. Do animals respond to art? This is trick this is a trick question. Do animals respond to art? Have you ever played music to animals? Do they respond to it? Yes but can they produce it? When the bird is quote-unquote singing, is it really singing? You know, I know in zippity doo da" on the Disney movie that, the, that it was made by the birds, um, but do birds create music? No, they're simply talking to other birds. It's bird language. We have associated with music, but it's not really music they're making. It are chirps and sounds, that other birds of their making will will create and the same is true with parrots they're not they don't understand the sounds that they're making they've just been trained to do it by repetition and mimicking birds like that and, uh, the mime bird and others like that that are mimickers mimic other ones do it for their own purposes and so we have all these traits that we can see that makes us evident that we are different than the rest of creation But science has a hard time with that because now we get into immeasurable things. We can't measure it, but it's obvious, it's evident. So why are we hung up on it? Because they don't want to acknowledge God is the one who made us different than the rest of creation. So while we are of this world, while we are in this world, we are above this world in terms of the highest of his creation, not a development of it. Okay, so while we are in it and, and, and while we are made of the same stuff uh, of water, earth, things like that and we can you know, talk about the uh, mineral content of what makes up man is worth so many dollars uh, which is a silly statement to make. Um, we understand that there are other things that make us his uh, image and we'll talk about that a little bit. So, uh, we believe in six literal days of creation. We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, man's chief purpose then is now, why, why were you made? Why did God create man? I say it in the sentence there, to glorify himself. I hear people say this, God made man because he's lonely. Okay, God did not need you to, not be, to, to keep him company. That's not why he created you. Uh, Why did he create you? To glorify himself. How? By the exercise of your image-bearingness. And it is when we exercise um, the distinct qualities that we have in this creation that glorifies God. When we do what he first commanded us to do. What were the first commandments he gave us? Let's list them off from Genesis. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Has it been done? No. We can, if we dedicated the state of Texas to pure agriculture, we could feed the entire world out of what it produces. You see, we have been told by science that we are overpopulating the earth. I believe that before the flood there was more people on the earth than there are today. God destroyed them. Okay? Uh, And so, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth is one of our first commands. When are you multiplied? Multiplication requires how many children? No. Three. You're multiplying by 1.5. Multiplying by one, if there's two people having two children, you've just replaced yourself. You haven't multiplied yourself. So, and you can't have a, half a kid. So, the next number is three, which is 1.5 multiplier. Now you're increasing. Um, but the idea is that you're going to have children, and that the evidence of God's blessing of his command to you is be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful. Um, and we don't have to take that too literally from agriculture because if you plant one seed, do you really want three seeds back? Okay, I planted one corn seed. How many corn seeds do I want back? Hundreds. Okay, you don't have to quite go that far, but that's the concept of being fruitful and multiplying to fill the earth. Next command. Tend it. We're going to get to subdue it. Tend the garden. Keep it. You keep the garden and have dominion over it. Subdue it. So, what does it mean to tend to the garden? All right, you're caring for it. How are you care? How does Adam and Eve care for the garden? No weeds. So, what do you do? You harvest. I don't even know. You have to. Do you have to replant, replenish? It wasn't too hard. Whatever you drop in the ground, boom, grew. There was. No, you didn't need to water it. So, what'd you do to tend it? You harvest it. What do you intend to do in heaven with the tree of life? You're going to pick fruit. That's essentially what it means. What's your relationship with the animal kingdom in the Garden of Eden? Friendly. So, how are you keeping them? Well, how do you show dominion? Well, man names the animals. And God says, okay, that's the name. That's the first task. Name these animals. Oh, that's an elephant. That's a zebra. Um, by the way, Adam didn't speak English, so we don't really know what he named the animals other than what's been passed down over the ages. And some people think Hebrew is the original language, and that's a little... We don't know that. Okay, But whatever Adam named, whatever Adam named him, God says that's its name. So he has dominion over them, an authority to name them, uh, and to subdue the earth. Uh, so what does Adam do to the earth to subdue it? What do we do to the earth to subdue it? Farm, it? farm it. What does that mean? You don't have to plow to farm, especially if uh, you live in the Garden of Eden. Ah, we subordinate it to our will. And so we go into uh, a wild place. <laughs> well, we got one of the little kills coming back. We, uh, we go into a wild place. So I, I bought some acreage up in the mountains. Wild, okay, somewhat wild. There was one little road in there. Somebody tried to get up in there and never did anything else. So it's just wild. So what's the first thing I do? Chop stuff down. Okay, so what's the first thing I, I do to the property? I do some clearing. Why? Was there something wrong with those plants? They're not what I wanted there. I knew that, that some of them were fire hazards, and I just thought they were ugly. I didn't appreciate them at all, um, and so we started clearing those out. I wanted to have a place to put up a tent, so we cleared that out. We cut off all the lower branches, and so we went through all the trees to try to cut everything that's low, uh, that's below six feet, and just clear that out so we wouldn't have a fire hazard, all the dead branches, and we also had firewood, and, and we conformed it to what we wanted to use it for. That's subduing it. I go into, a, into what appears chaos into a, without order, and I put order there. All right? And so when a farmer goes out there and sows a field, does he sow it erratically? Very orderly. All right? And the more advanced we get in mechanization, the more we understand that it has to be done very orderly. The, the rows have to be exactly the distance apart. Do you know why corn rows are the distance apart they are? Huh? For tractor tires, this is the width of a tractor tire. It's not because it's a magical distance for corn to, to properly uh, germinate itself. It's to fit our tractors in. You can plant them closer together. You really can, depending upon the value of your soil. Um, and and so now they're trying to devise tractors that can go through and, and have narrower tires that can go through these cornfields and, and do it differently to get a higher harvest out. A big deal right now in agriculture. And so... We, the more sophisticated our farming, the more order we require. Okay, And that is a theme we're going to pick up on in the next few weeks, but I just want to introduce it. So we're called to subdue the earth, and, and you might say, well, how can you improve on a perfect place? Did Adam and Eve have an opportunity to, in, to improve upon a perfect place? Well, it depends on what you mean by improvement. Is it to make it morally better? No, because it was good already. It was to conform it to what I want it to look like. How many of you have seen those little bonsais? What's a bonsai tree? Did it start? Yeah, this is a standard tree, but you carefully shape it to the shape you want to fit on a shelf. Right? But it's just a normal tree. It really is. You just got to carefully trim it and trim it and trim it and keep it this and then it looks like a miniature of its adult tree of its of a wild grown tree. And so when we talk about what am i doing? I'm conforming creation to what i what appeals to me. It's subduing the earth. And so yes, i think Adam and Eve were subdued. Okay. So, when we talk about these it wasn't just we have to do this after sin. This was the instructions that Adam before there was sin. So we're the highest of creation. There are evident differences. And if you look around, you can see the differences that we're subduing the earth while the rest of creation is not involved in that, in that activity and cannot be. They don't have the capacities and they don't have the right. They don't have the authority to exercise dominion. Only we do. Now, what about the fear of man in animals? When did that come about? After the flood. So God has on occasion come in and made some evident changes in creation in response to man's abuses of it. And we're going to reference that differently. All right, so let's look at that because that's what many people say. Well, that's evidence of one of these evolutionary positions and I'm gonna counter that here in a little bit so let's look at some wrong theories of the origins and the origins of man because that's what was really uh, the beginning aspect of this is how is man where did man come from I'm back where did man come from so naturalistic evolution That's what we typically think of when we think of evolution from scientism, and that is that it's all chance, and uh, over time, and there is no God involved, and we're going to try to uh, replicate that next Sunday night, and I was going to do a time, but this morning was too different enough, I didn't need that tonight as well, and so we're going to replicate that next Sunday night, trying to see if you can evolve something from something else, And we use that term evolution, and it's kind of interesting to hear us talk about how phones evolved. Did phones evolve? What did they do? We have used the word evolution to refer to change, which it really does, but there's also devolution evolution, which is either you've changed to improve or you've changed to... But it's all by chance. The the key word here is chance. Chance. Uh, Did phones get to where they are today by chance? Did it just happen to them? No, we have developed them. We have added, added, added to them by human energy and thought. It wasn't just random. And so, but we use the word evolution. How did this evolve? How did how did the internet evolve? Well, it didn't evolve at all. It didn't happen by chance. It happened very thoughtfully. That it came into being. So naturalistic evolution says these things all happen without chance. There's no deity at all. There's no uh, uh, mover. And it is one of the easiest ones to destroy out of this list. But it is the most widely held. That's how successful they have been. So if we originate by, by, by this evolution, by natural evolution, uh, what are we? We are monkeys, we are horses for that matter, because we all come from fish, keep going back. Amoeba, Amoeba. single-celled organism, keep going back. Mud, Mud. yeah, alien, who knows? Uh, And so we go back into it and we we keep going back and essentially we say, well, we're just advanced monkeys, but what was a monkey before that? and before that, and before that, and before that, and eventually get down to that you weren't alive at all. So out of non-living came life. But we can't make that happen now. We cannot make life out of something that isn't alive. We can't take inert material and make it alive. Even Frankenstein knew that. You have to start with living material and reanimate it, because you can't, Take something that's inert and make it alive. We cannot do it. With all of our knowledge, we cannot do it. But you go into the church of evolution that we support with our government money, and they have this formula. You, know, you walk through the, the, the hall or the cave of life, and they have this formula. I say, okay, reproduce it. This is science. Reproduce it. You, know, you have these chemicals, energy... <laughs> I, I mean, if it happened by accident once, certainly we can make it happen by, by our intelligence, right? But we can't. We have to have a bacteria. We have to have a, a life form uh, or former life form. We have to have genetic material to insert into the equation. And so that's when you get to the idea that we had aliens, but then where did the alien life come from? It goes. You just take it all back. So naturalistic evolution is the easiest one to destroy, to tell you the truth, but it's the most widely held. That everything was done by chance, and we're going to see how that cannot be in some very simple arguments uh, we're going to begin to talk about next week. Deistic evolution. Deistic evolution uh, is very common from the 70s. What was going on in the 70s? Is we had a group of men trained in sciences, poorly trained in theology, but claimed to be theologians, who said we have to make these two entities agree because there was an assault on God's word. 60, it started in the 50s and 60s, but by the 70s it was full-blown. And so in the 1970s, a lot of these men came forward with, with theorems. And, and all the way back in the, into the 1950s, you had several of them trying to insert these things, and we're going to talk about theistic evolution, and progressive creationism. but deistic evolution uh, is basically uh, the idea that there is a God somewhere, but he's not actively involved. He just, he just started it all and walked away. That is, he put the original code into muck and then walked away. That's deistic evolution. So God is still the originator of it, but he put that original spark of life into the mire of the muck. And then in that spark of life he put into there came all of life. And that there was a code kind of in there that uh, that took millions and millions and millions of years to come to fruition to create man. Okay, and so it's called deistic evolution, uh, which is a little bit different than theistic evolution. So there is a deity, deist de- are do believing a God, but not a personal God that's involved with us. And your deity could be an alien that came in and just dropped something into the muck to start life on earth. Okay? And so that is really in conformity with that. And that, um, many people attribute other deists who believe in a God or Godness without being a personal God to like uh, Thomas Jefferson or deists, that they believed in God but not the personal interactive God that loves you and is involved on earth, but just uh, that, that he was the beginning, uh, that there is a negligent, distant uh, transcendent God that you can't really know. And that's deism. And so it doesn't matter what your tradition is. If you think it's Brahma that did that or if you think it was Thor that did that or if you think it was, it was uh, uh, Allah that did that, it doesn't matter um, because they're all the same. It's just that, that little poink and the uh, catalyst of it all was some deity. And then everything came out of that. All right, and that's a pretty broadly held view among a lot of other religions. A lot of religions hold to that. Uh, your Hindus are all okay with that. Uh, many of your, uh, uh, boot, your boot, all of those, the Eastern religions are all okay with that. And many uh, others are too, including Judaism, uh, although they, I don't know how they conform that with their scriptures, so it involved involve God. Let's go to the third one. Theistic evolution uh, takes several um, things, but the main thing that they, there, there are several categories of theistic evolution. So there's a God that's involved, the God of the Bible. They acknowledge the scriptures, and they want to have scriptures and science agree. And whenever someone says, I'm a scientist and I want scripture and science to agree, who do you think has to compromise? The Bible. Science doesn't compromise. The Bible has to compromise. So what do they compromise? A variety of things. I gave one example, the day-age theory. What is that? The seven days of creation are not seven little 24-hour days. They are, in fact, seven periods of time of indeterminate length. Thus, the day is actually an age. Now, if you go through the list of those, it's kind of, uh, then you have to also understand that there's a problem in the order of God's creation. What's the problem? You have one thing created before a thing it necessitates. What's the problem with the Creator? Let's go to Genesis. Take your Bible. You need to be able to answer this because this is a. All right. How do you have plant life without a sun? So let's look at it here. We have the, verse 11. The earth is to bring forth grass, herb that yields seeds, and its fruit and fruit tree yields its fruit according to its kind, The seed in itself on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seeds according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit whose seeds in itself according to its kind. And God saw it was good so that even in the morning were the third day. So that would be the third age of many, 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 perhaps millions of years uh, of being at that point and then God comes along and now another age later there are lights in the firmament of the heavens divide the day from the night so somehow the plants thrived all that time without the sun moon and stars now if you've grown anything what do you learn from growing anything does it require sunlight <laughs> yes Uh, Now, there was light, and people say, well, there was light, but it wasn't organized like the sun, moon, and stars, and that's, well, there was a division of light from dark. Where was the earth? We don't know. But then the light, then the dark, um, but we don't comprehend these things. And if they last for ages, ages, millennia, more than millennia, millions of years, now you have a condition where you have all of the plant life Without a sun, moon, stars. And so this theory loses weight. It has it, it does huge damage to the text of scripture here that says very specifically: evening and morning was the first day, evening and morning was the second day. Evening and morning was the third day. It's very specific. And then we're going to talk about after its kind. But there are many theorists like this. Most of them were writing in the 70s, 60s and 70s. 70s seen, just seemed like a, a burst of them came on the scene. They were going to write these alternate theories. And I have a number of their books because it was required reading for me uh, in college as a, in a Christian college as a science major. And so I have a number of their books. I've read through their theories, and they all do damage to the Bible. When they say that the Bible and science should agree, because all knowledge is... all tr- Here's their statement. All truth is God's truth. So if science comes to a truth, it's equivalent to God's truth. Because all truth is God's truth. That's their, that was the watchword of this group. That was their slogan. All truth is God's truth. So if science comes to something we call it a truth... How do we know it's a truth? You can't measure it. You can't repeat it. It defies science. But now we've said that evolution must be a truth observed, but we haven't observed it ever. Okay? I've been raising animals for a long time, and I've never seen any of them transition to a different animal. Right? Doesn't matter how many duck eggs my ducks catch, they all come out ducks. I've not been able to bring forth a platypus. Not one of them. Okay? A platypus is a male that lays eggs. A mammal that lays eggs, which is a really weird crossover. One of their prime examples. And so, um, this is what theistic evolutionists have done. And they always, always, always compromise God's word. They never challenge science. They accept what scientism presents, that that must be truth because it's observable uh, and they don't challenge underlying assumptions like we're going to do next week. And then there is progressive creationism, and this is kind of an interesting one. Uh, And I've heard some Christian communities talk about this that essentially what happens, and this is really just a form of theistic evolution, is that God comes along and helps it. The evolution happened just like you're seeing in the fossil record, but the, the jump is God. He just kind of nudges it and nudges it. and So anytime you get to a point where you don't see uh, how the evolutionary process is happening, the leap from monkey to man is just God nudging it. And he comes in, and sometimes he, cre- he does microevolution uh, and that was a big thing, uh, and uh, and that was proposed. So basically, God comes in and can reset it, and so He can just say, "Oh, you know, it's gone so long, and now I want it to go to the next level, so I'm going to bump it up, and and kind of put His His paddles of life on it and charge, boom! And now we have a new another the next level of life. Okay. Well, that is not what God's Word describes at all. And let's talk about microevolution. What is microevolution? Macroevolution is when you go from one species to another species, origin of a species. What is microevolution? Are changes within a species. Okay mutations are usually what we talk about that create variety. And again um, when you hear it most, you hear it in the realm of bacteria that become uh, resistant to antibiotics. How many of you heard that? They evolve. So they are able to, they become superbugs that can stand against antibiotics. And that's only half the truth. Because as they become resistant against this antibiotic, what we have found is that in order to do that, they have actually become less resistant to old antibiotics that are less powerful. They don't tell you that though, do they? Well, it's resistant to our antibiotics. Well, that's because we're using these modern ones and we keep developing more and more antibiotics, stronger and stronger, thinking that's what's required. But the what we are doing is called the survival of the fittest and these fit ones that are able to condition themselves against that antibiotic actually in the course of doing that make themselves necessarily weaker and are actually resistant to the old antibiotic or non-resistant to old antibiotics weaker ones and so um, let's talk about that process a little bit because that's what they say is the origin of your species that's how what we see among the bacterium world is what happened to man on a macro level, to monkeys, to man. Um, And there are several examples historically that that are, we use as examples, um, and you might say, well, those aren't fair examples today, but I want to share with you, these were major science-promoted in-school examples from 50 years ago. And that is when the London moths became black. Microevolution. London moths moved from white to black. And and evolutionists touted this. The London moths have have evolved from white to black. Why did the London moths move from white to black? Does anybody know? Have you heard that at all? Okay. That is one of the examples that was promoted heavily when it was discovered, that you couldn't find a white moth in London in the 1800s, going into the early 1900s. And that was one of the examples cited of evolution. Why did the moths move from white to black? That's adaptation. It's not even adaptation. It's survival of the fittest, What happened in London in the 1800s? Pollution. London itself, air quality was horrible. And there was soot on everything. That's why when you see all the Charles Dickens things, everything's black. Because they were burning so much, you had the Industrial Revolution happening, you had soot everywhere. Everything was black. So, if moths were always producing a variety of colors and the buildings went from being predominantly white to being predominantly black, what happened to white moths? The birds ate them because they could see them. And they couldn't see the black moths anymore as easily. So the black moths increased. It wasn't that white moths weren't being born. It's that white moths are being eaten. And prior to that, the black moths were more easily seen. And so the white moths were predominantly what you encountered. Doesn't mean there weren't any black moths. It was just that those ones got eaten. Because the environment changed, now we have this change. But what we found out is that the moths were producing a variety of color among them. Surprise. Surprise. Some were being eaten, some weren't. And this was one of their big examples that they touted to us in school when I was in elementary school that promoted evolution. And then we did some more research and tested that, and and the theory doesn't hold. Um, So the survival of the fittest um, is kind of okay because you're talking about you had diversity, and now you have survival. Survival of the fittest requires diversity at the beginning, correct? Because you're going to have strong and weak, this range, right? And who's going to survive if you believe in survival of the fittest? The strong. Which means that in order for us to have strong here, it means we have to have diversity back here, correct? But evolution says the other thing. We're going to go from few to many which means there's diversity out here. And so I surprised people. I said, well, I believe in survival of the fittest, which means that over time we have lost species because they have not been able to handle the environmental changes. I believe we lost a lot of species at the flood that didn't do so well after the flood. They were on Noah's Ark, but in the new environment, they did not fare so well. I believe we've lost species because man has hunted them to extinction. Because we don't like fire-breathing dragons, do we? Kind of interesting that every culture believes in dragons. Has it in their history that that's the one animal you make sure you hunt. You kill those things. Well, we've killed them. And that shocks people. I remember that we're life kids on dress up night. I was like, "Yeah, I believe in dragons." They're, not, they're extinct now, but haven't been for that long, just a few hundred years, because um, in medieval times they still referenced them. So, um, yeah, I believe that, but the, so we had great diversity that God created, and now it is diminishing because the environmental changes and because of the nature of sin and its impact on the earth, and that's an expected thing. But when I tell someone I believe in survival of this, they immediately say, oh, you're an evolutionist. So I just kind of smile at them. And then they start talking to me for a little longer, and they're like, wait a minute. You said you believe in survival of this? I said, yes. But what you don't understand is that that requires diversity at the beginning, not the end. You need to have this wide diversity at the beginning, and then only the strong survive. And so when we come to this, we're going to talk about for the next few Weeks, because uh, but man is distinct from all of this. So the origin of our species is this, God's supernatural creation. Now He did something different with man. They did with everyone else. We were created out of dirt. We we're told the whole process. It's very detailed in God's word to set us apart. That man and woman were created in the image of God, and so. This is what we want to focus in on, is what is the image of God? I've talked about that. Do you have any questions on it? The authority to choose, which means that you're in charge of things on the earth with regard to yourself and the rest of creation. You subdue them. We are the subduers. Um, But we live in a weird environment because we're post-flood, not pre-flood. Okay? Any questions on that? Yes? And that's that's called the gap theory, okay? That's the gap theory, and there's several versions of it. And that would be under theistic evolution. That's another example, of theistic evolution, that there's a gap. One of people, some people put the gap between Genesis 1:1 and Genesis 1:2, that God created everything and it didn't work out so good, and so and so it was void. That was he emptied it and then started over. And that in that gap was was the millions of years that we see, uh, and where the coal reserves and all that came from. And then the other position is that there are two creation accounts, that one is not a summary of the other one or anything like that, but there are actually two separate creation accounts given here in Genesis. And, uh, And again, these were flying around. These have been flying around for a long time, pretty much all of our lives. And... Uh, It just doesn't hold water. Most textual critics will uh, acknowledge that that really uh, is forced. Again, we are compromising Scripture to fit science, and we're never willing to compromise, quote-unquote, science to fit Scripture. And to say, well, I'm going to challenge your findings on that because it doesn't agree with God's Word. Um, But the gap concept that there were two creation accounts, that one failed, and that uh, that was the fall of Satan. In fact, they would associate the fall of Satan with destroying the first creation of God. And at the second creation of God, that Satan, that sin was uh, around and available, and that he had to do it in uh, kind of a a post-fall environment that the first creation, that that Satan destroyed it, and he's trying to destroy this one. That's held by several people. Um, Obviously, we don't hold to that, and and I would contend that this is a very common uh, writing style in Scripture where we have uh, different emphasis on two passages. Two passages with a different emphasis. But it's very evident that Adam and Eve uh, were created on the same day, uh, which means that he named all the animals that day as well on that sixth day. And then God rested from all his work. Um, Should he be created Eve on day eight, uh, day nine, something like that? I don't know that uh, that creates a a big problem other than the fact that the Bible says that he created male and female. And um, it was not good for man to be alone. That, that is another one of the theistic... Like I said, there's a number of theistic evolution propositions out there, and they all do damage to God's word. And the gap theory is definitely one of them. That There are gaps, or multiple gaps, in the Bible that uh, basically got it to start over again. Good. All right, we're going to delve into some basic science uh, next week that will expose the weaknesses of the evolutionary model. Um, I'm going to try not to be too um, nerdy about it. Okay, I want to be very plainly spoken. Um, you don't have to have a chemistry degree, I don't think, to understand it. Um, we're going to talk about how we do dating methods. We're going to talk about uh, fossil records and we'll talk about Uh, sun, moon, stars kind of evidence. Uh, That is that outside of our uh, realm where we can touch and handle, manipulate. And so we're going to talk about the age of rocks, things like that, how aging, how dating works, because that's one of the critical aspects of this process. Okay, But uh, it's kind of interesting that the field of genetics has really opened things up, that now we... The geneticists tell us that all genes, all genetic material from man shows evidence of a single human pair that we're all derived from. Isn't that interesting? So, in uh, some of the modern things that we've come up with, um, dinosaur bones with, with soft material still in them, Fossils with soft material, you don't know how huge that is for the creationist movement. And we'll talk about the Genesis flood as being an accounting for some of the things we see. All right? Good. Well, that's our prayer. Right. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and its trustworthiness. And Lord, we see a great battle, uh, a war. That man, uh, in their sin and their desire to disregard you, has placed against your word. And in the realm of science, perhaps, uh, they have been most successful. We've allowed them to gain too much traction in our schools, in our society, in our minds. And uh, Lord, we uh, pray that we might be better students of your word. And, and as you've told us, it is the place of kings to, uh, to inquire after your creation, to investigate it, to, to understand it. And Lord, we pray that we might, as children of the King, be involved in that process and see it as an act of worship to acknowledge you, not to challenge you, and to confirm your word as others have. And we pray you might give us wisdom in that respect. Pray you might give us a, a capacity to engage people, um, but not to argue, but to bring them to knowledge of the truth, that they might receive you as Savior and Lord, not that we might win, bat- win arguments, or win discussions uh, and lose the individuals we're engaging. or give us that love for people to allow us to be patient and uh, caring in our, in, in our conversation with them that they might receive your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.